again, next Sunday, uh, we're going to be here at uh, 10.30. Uh, we're going to have a great time of worship. Uh, we're going to have a lunch afterwards, so make sure you, uh, you know, carve out enough time to stick around for that. It's always a lot of fun. And let's pray for great weather, too. It's always great to celebrate the, the resurrection on a beautiful, uh, sunny Sunday. And so that'll be a lot of fun as well. Uh, but today is uh, sort of uh, kind of the end, but really the beginning of, of a sermon series. Um, for the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the seven miracles that the gospel writer John writes in his gospel rendition. And uh, today is the seventh miracle. We started seven weeks ago at Jesus showing up at a wedding, turning water to wine. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him heal people, give sight to the blind. Uh, we've seen him feed the masses. And now today we see probably the most fantastic miracle of all. He raises a dead man back to life. He raises Lazarus from the grave. And as we've been exploring and looking at these different miracles uh, over the last seven weeks, the question we've been asking is, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? We've been building this biography, painting a picture of Jesus, so to speak, so that for us, we here, as we're approaching the cross, as we come to Easter, we can come with a greater expectation, a more true, more accurate, more authoritative picture of who Jesus is in our lives in this world. And I hope that that's what this series has been doing for you. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this um, miracle of resurrection, which is, again, in, in scale, probably the greatest of them all. Uh, and it will tell us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this resurrection will also point to another resurrection that we can all anticipate in our lives as well. And so turn with me to John chapter 11. And uh, this is actually a pretty long passage to look at. We're going to look at uh, just over 40 verses and so John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through this together. And then uh, we'll, we'll kind of jump in. John 11, verse 1. This is the New International Version. John writes, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Interestingly, this incident doesn't even take place until the next chapter in John. And John is, again, writing this after the events have already happened. And so what he's doing, he's reaching into the best piece of evidence that he has to show us who this Mary and Martha and Lazarus are and the intimacy and the love and the bond that they share with Jesus. Okay, just so you're not confused. You can turn to John 12 and you'll see there, oh, this is, this he alludes to it here, but it happens there. But again, John is just putting it together. This is his story. Okay, this is who that Mary is. Verse three, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, 
he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. It's interesting, I didn't hear Jesus asking for her, but that's what Martha said. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a, a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go.
This is the word of God. Can we bow for a word of prayer one more time? Lord God, help us this morning as we spend time in your word. Speak to us, Father. Lord, may your spirit guide us through this passage, through this text. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, if not for anything else, this passage, this miracle is best known for having the shortest verse in the Bible. The one that we always say, hey, if I need to memorize a verse, this is the one I'll memorize. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Right? We all know that one. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. But this is also a very fantastic miracle because Jesus brings a dead man back to life. He brings Lazarus out from the grave. And John goes out of his way, it seems, to show the close nature, uh, the, the nature of this close relationship that Jesus has with this family, these two sisters and brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. I mean, John goes so far, in fact, that, that in verse uh, 2, he refers to an incident that he doesn't even bring up until the next chapter. He says, this is the same Mary who took that expensive jar of perfume. Some people say that that, that jar of perfume in our day today would cost between thirty dollars and $50,000. It was literally a life savings. It was maybe an inheritance that she had received from someone. But she had taken this most important uh, possession of hers and she'd broken it over the feet of Jesus to anoint him and she wiped it with her. This was the kind of love that she had for Christ that she had for Jesus. And John is bringing this up to say, this is the kind of love they have. Then John says, this is the family that they loved. And when they write a note to Jesus to say that Lazarus is sick, they say to Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. And so John is going out of his way. He says it three times, in fact, to show us that this particular family is a family that Jesus loves. And it's interesting because apart from James, John, and Peter, the three closest disciples of Jesus, there isn't anyone else in all of Scripture, or in the New Testament, really, that comes close to having this kind of intimacy and love with Jesus. But then that's strange, isn't it? Because the way that Jesus responds to their distress signal doesn't seem like he loves them that much. See, Jesus, uh, in chapter 9, gave sight to a blind man, and then people started to say, hold on, we need to take this guy out. He's a threat to, you know, the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin. And so they plot to, to arrest him, but Jesus escapes. He goes east, and now he receives a message saying that Lazarus is sick, so now he comes back to Bethany near Jerusalem. But he doesn't come immediately. He waits after he hears this message. It's kind of odd, isn't it? An odd reaction for someone who apparently loved this family. A few months ago, last fall, back in October, I got a phone call from my dad on a Sunday night. And, uh, you know, he calls me all the time. But this time, I don't know, it just kind of was out of the blue. And I could tell by the tone of his voice that it was serious. And he called me to tell me that my grandmother was sick and that she was probably nearing death. And so he gave me two options. He said, uh, you can come down right away this week, and maybe you can uh, see her before she goes to be with the Lord. And you can kind of spend that last time with her. Or um, if you want to just kind of wait on standby, we'll let you know when she passes and the funeral's set, and then you can come down and come to the funeral. You can come now or you can come later. And for me, it was a no-brainer. I got off the phone, I told my wife, I said, Esther, you know, my grandmother's sick, I'd love to go see her. She said, go see her. 
I booked a ticket that night, the next morning, got on a plane, uh, got down, uh, got to the hospital around 4 o'clock that afternoon. Uh, she was, uh, you know, already unconscious and everything, but was able to see her and pray with her and sing with her. And that night, she passed away. And had I delayed a day or two like Jesus had, I probably would have, I don't know, carried this guilt that, you know, I could have gone, I should have just canceled my appointments, or I should have just, you know, figured out my business and just gone to be by her side. But I went because she's my grandmother, you know, I wanted to see her one last time because I loved her. Isn't that what any of you would do if you got the same message? Someone whom you love is nearing death? Would you say, oh, I'll I'll, I'll get to it later. I've got some other things I need to do and take care of first. Or would you drop everything and go? So it's kind of interesting that that John points out this incredible love, this bond, this intimacy, this relationship that Jesus has with his family. And then he shows us that Jesus uh, hears this distress call that Lazarus is sick and then he doesn't respond right, right away. In fact, by the time he ends up showing up, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. He's already been buried. He's already in the tomb. They're just weeping and mourning. It's the ceremonial time of just weeping and mourning. But what's the most significant thing here in this passage is is what happens when Jesus arrives, okay? Jesus says, the reason why I showed up late, the reason why I died is so that I could be glorified. So he makes the answer quite clear, okay? Jesus says, all of this happens so that I could receive glory because I'm gonna show you what I'm about to do. See, Jesus shows up with two things that none of us can show up with. First of all, Jesus shows up with the knowledge of what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that in a few minutes, this funeral is gonna turn into a party. Everybody who's weeping and mourning is gonna be laughing and dancing and rejoicing. Jesus knows this. No one else could possibly know it because Jesus is God. Jesus also shows up with the power to make this happen, which none of us could do. But what's really important, what I want to show you this morning is Jesus' response to Mary and Martha when they first meet, okay? It is really interesting, okay? Because if you look in verse 21, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so she went out to meet Jesus, but Mary stayed, okay? Mary holds back, and so Martha comes and she says, Lord, if you had been here My brother would not have died. And then a few verses later, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, so Mary comes back, Martha comes back and says, hey, Jesus is out there. He wants you to come. Mary goes, she falls at his feet, and she says word for word exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Literally the same words come out of Mary's mouth. Martha says it in verse 21. Mary says it in verse 32. But the interesting thing is Jesus' response to the two sisters is completely different. And it's because this miracle, in this act, Jesus is showing us who he is. You see, when Martha comes, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, that's right. I'm the resurrection and the life you believe in me you'll never die do you believe jesus confronts martha's grief with truth but when mary comes and she says lord if you had been here my brother would not have died jesus is speechless 
he doesn't confront Mary with the same truth, I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, he is deeply troubled, and in verse 35, he weeps. When he comes to Martha, he's confident, he's secure, he's authoritative. I am the resurrection and the life. When he comes to Mary, he weeps. They both said the same thing. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. So why the different reaction to the same response? This is what I want us to look at this morning. Why does Jesus treat them differently? Because Jesus is showing us something here that we oftentimes wrestle with or forget in our times of great need, sorrow, and distress. And he's revealing it in this miracle of raising this dead man back to life. Jesus' response to Mary is the truth. It's the ministry of the truth. What you need, woman, is truth. You are grieving, and what you need now is the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. And when it comes to Mary, what Mary needs is not a ministry of truth. She needs the ministry of tears. And what this reveals to us about Jesus is that he is both, at the same exact time, fully God, fully truth, fully absolute, and at the same time, fully man, fully flesh, fully able to cry and weep and embrace human emotion. You see what's happening here? Two sisters whom he loves say the exact same thing. To one, he reveals his divinity. To the other, he reveals his humanity. And this is so important for us as we think about what happens this week, Passion Week, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about the cross, as we think about Jesus' own resurrection. We need to remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man, not half and half. He didn't have a switch where he was one and then he'd flip the switch and then he was another. He was always completely, totally, fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully flesh. You see, liberals will oftentimes have no problem saying Jesus was a man. He was a Jew. He was a carpenter. His mom was Mary. His dad was Joseph. He lived and and died 2,000 years ago. Liberals will embrace the fact that he was a historical figure and that he was the most influential figure in all of history. But when it comes to his divinity, they struggle. They they can't admit he wasn't really God. He was just a really good teacher. He was like Abraham or Moses or one of the prophets. They can't put those two together, and so they deny his divinity. But on the other hand, you have a lot of conservatives who have no problem saying Jesus is God. He's a son of God. He's fully divine. He's fully able to do everything because he has the power of God in his hands. But then they have a hard time sewing that together with his humanity. How could Jesus have such patience for sinners? How could Jesus be so weak? How could Jesus cry? See, on the one hand, you have the liberal view that says Jesus is just a man. And you have a conservative view that says Jesus is just God. But in this passage, we have neither because we have both. In this passage, we have Jesus being God and man to Martha and Mary. He gives one the ministry of truth and the other the ministry of tears. And this is how he reveals to us who he is and what he came to do. And oftentimes we tend to have a bias toward either the more extreme liberal view or the more extreme conservative view. 
there's sort of a spectrum. I tend to just by default, you know, kind of lean more on the conservative view of, of who Jesus was. And I tend to stick more to the fact that he's God. You know, that's all you need to know. He's truth. And I minimize the humanity part of it. For instance, a lot of times people will come to me and they'll come with difficulties or sorrows. They'll come with troubles. And they want counseling. They want healing. They want advice. And I tend to be the kind of guy that likes to fix the problem. I like to look at the, the, the issue and then uh, provide a solution and say, go do that and you'll be well. Somebody will come to me and I'll say, this is the three or four reasons why you're struggling and why you're suffering. These are the seven or eight things you need to do to make it right. And I send them on their way and they usually never come back, right? My wife gets so frustrated with me when she comes home from work and she's like, you know, frustrated with all of her coworkers or there's drama or whatever. And she's just, ah, it was a rough day. And she gets frustrated when I tell her what she should have done or what she should have said. Because I'm a fixer. I'm like, buck up. You know, just deal with it. You know, talk to that person. You know, make it right. And she gets mad at me because she doesn't want me to tell her what she should have done or what she should do. She wants me to empathize with her frustration and her disappointment. She wants me to be her husband. Not her peer, not her colleague. Not her uh, boss. But that's how I tend to go through life. And some of you do that as well. You see other Christians or brothers and sisters struggling through life. You see them grieving over loneliness or struggling with depression or unsatisfied at their job or their, or their grades or their family situation. And you tend to have that more con- conservative complex where you say, buck up. Don't you know who Jesus is, God is? Stop crying. Stop complaining. Just get with it. And that tends to be people who are a little bit more morally righteous, a little bit more legalistic in the way that they view life and faith. They tend to fix things. Hey, your problem's not that big. Jesus is bigger than your problems. Come on, go to Jesus. That's one view. That's one sort of bias that we tend to lean toward. The other one that we tend to lean toward is the extreme liberal view. And these are the people who are oftentimes very overcome with emotion in their situation. And they are unwilling to confront the answers to their situation or where they are. They're unwilling to hear the truth. They deny the fact that God is able to do all things. And so you can come to them and say, hey, you know, I know things are hard, but you know, you need to know that God has a will for it. And they refuse to believe it. In fact, they become more resentful and more bitter. And what they want is they want to be in their pain and they want to know that God feels their pain. Some of us are like that. Some of you are like that. It's one or the other, but Jesus is both. Jesus is fully God. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the resurrection. And he's fully human. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your situation. And it troubles him and he weeps over it. This is an incredible revelation of who Jesus is. Because a lot of times when we're going through crap, we feel like God doesn't care, don't we? That's our initial, that's, that's again, the more liberal view. We tend to think God doesn't care. Where is he? If he was here, this would not have happened. If he was here, my brother would not have died. If he was really in control, this would not have happened to my family. Maybe he is in control, but he doesn't love. 
Or maybe he does love, but he isn't in control and he can't do anything about it. But in this miracle, he does love and he does have control and he does something about it. That is the point of this miracle. That is what we are to see. Who is he? He's fully God and he's fully man. But I want to point one more thing out before I look at the resurrection. You see in verse uh, 33 and 34, when Jesus saw uh, Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So Jesus asked, where have you laid him? So he's kind of speechless here. Instead of saying, I am the resurrection and the life, now he's kind of like overcome with emotion. Okay, where is Lazarus? I I have to go to the tomb right now. And then in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, comes to the tomb and he says, move the stone away. Now, the problem with this word deeply moved in verse 33 and in verse 38 is that it's a mistranslation. And I hate to bring this up all the time with you guys. I know you're probably thinking, Eugene, why do you always do this to us? You, you totally knock away all the confidence that we have that we can read the Bible and know what it means. You know, if I read it and, and this is wrong, then, then what confidence can I have to study the Bible for myself? Get a good commentary. Get a good study Bible. Because you need tools. You need research. What the Greek word for this deeply moved is actually saying is not deeply moved. That sounds very dramatic. It sounds very compassionate. But what it really says is angered. There's like a primordial anger, snorting with anger. This is the kind of word that it uses. But nobody likes to put the word anger here because then it makes Jesus very complicated. It doesn't make sense. He's not as palatable. It sounds nice if Jesus is deeply moved, but if he's angry at this funeral, what is he angry about? And ironically, the only translation, the only English translation that gets this right is the one translation that a lot of people like to knock on, which is one of my favorite, actually. It's Eugene Peterson's The Message. It's, a, it's more of a paraphrastic translation, but in The Message, Peterson gets it right. Instead of deep anger, he writes, when Je- then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb, and then and he writes in this passage, when Jesus saw Mary sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Why is it important to see that Jesus was actually angry instead of deeply moved when he came to this funeral? Because when Jesus comes to this funeral, like I said, he comes with a couple of things that we don't have. He comes with knowledge with what he's going to do. Why would he be angry if he knew that in a couple of minutes, Lazarus was going to be alive? Is he angry that he was late? Is he angry that Lazarus died? Is he angry that people still don't know who he is? Jesus knows what's going to happen, and he knows that these people are going to believe in him as a result of it. So why does he come angry? Jesus comes to the tomb angry because he's, he's at this funeral... And he knows what it's going to become, but it's not just this funeral that he sees. Jesus sees every funeral that will ever take place, but more importantly, Jesus sees his own funeral. Seven weeks ago, I said Jesus was at a wedding. And at that wedding, what was on Jesus' mind was the wedding that he was at, but the wedding that he would one day host as well. And that would be by giving the wine of his blood so that all could come and drink, so that all could come and be cleansed of their sins. And here at this funeral, Jesus is not only weeping and mourning for Lazarus and this family, 
but he's angry. He's deeply moved because he's also thinking about every other funeral, but more importantly, his own funeral. Because what happens right after he raises Lazarus from the dead is all these people, they go and tell the Pharisees, and the Pharisees get together in the Sanhedrin, and they say, okay, that's it. We must kill him. And so they plot to kill him. Jesus comes to this grave, he comes to this tomb, and he knows that when he raises Lazarus from the dead, that he's going to be signing his own death sentence. But he also knows that he must defeat death. This is why he came, to defeat death. Because death was not a part of God's creation. Death was not a part of God's plan. Death is the result and the consequence of our sin and our rebellion. Death is a result of our idolatry. It was not a part of God's plan. And so as Jesus is now entered into time and space 2,000 years ago, fully God and fully man, now he is confronting death. And he's gonna raise this man back up from the dead. It's also his own death sentence, but it's also his own pain and his own anger toward all of the death that's a result of all of the sin of all humanity. And that is what Jesus came to confront. That is what Jesus came to deal with. So that if we believed in the resurrection and the life, which is Jesus, we would no longer die. That we would live forever with God. Because eternal life, not death, eternity, not just our short bleep existence in history is the plan of God. And so he raises Lazarus from the dead. And as he raises Lazarus from the dead, even though he won't be at every other funeral, a little while later, he'll be at his own funeral. But he'll raise himself. God will raise him from the dead. And Lazarus' resurrection is not only a sign that points to Jesus' coming resurrection, but it's also a sign, it's a, it's a picture of our resurrection as well. If we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we too will be resurrected. And the only difference between Lazarus' resurrection and our resurrection is time. Lazarus is raised from the dead four days after he dies. You and I, when we die, we don't know when our resurrection will take place. But in light of eternity, what difference will that time make? It won't. The important thing is, Jesus asks Mary this question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus came to conquer sin and death and destruction? The death that we should die, the sin that we have committed the brokenness that we have brought about in this world. Do you believe that he has come to overcome that with his resurrection and his life? Do you believe that he's fully God and that he's fully man? Because if you do, then in your suffering and in your pain and in your grief, you can hold on to the absolute truth that God is good and that God is God. And if you also believe that God is fully God and fully man in your suffering, in your pain, and in your grief, 
you can take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows your pain, Jesus knows your suffering, and Jesus knows your grief. Because when Jesus was at this funeral and as he wept for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, again, Jesus is also weeping for all the other funerals and all the other deaths and all the other tragedies because Jesus is God and he can see through this funeral into every funeral. He can see through this death into every death. He can see through this sorrow into every sorrow because he is God. If he was just man, he'd only be consumed with this funeral. If he was just man, he'd only be consumed with this family. But because he's God, he's consumed with every funeral, with every death, and with every family and every person, including you and me. And Jesus is overcome with grief. And this resurrection points us to the fact that even in our grief, even in our pain, Jesus is able to turn that into joy. And next week, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at the cross. This Friday, we're going to meet here at 7 o'clock. We invite all of you to come here. It's going to be a dark service, literally. Uh, But it'll be a time for us to reflect on his death, Jesus' blood on the cross. But on Sunday, we're going to talk about his resurrection. And we're going to continue to look at it through the lens that John gives us in his gospel. And I love the fact that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and then next week we're gonna look at Jesus being raised from the dead himself. Because this is what it does. Let me give you a closing illustration. I was telling this uh, to Esther just a few days ago. But have you ever had one of those nightmares, one of those bad dreams that somebody that you love dies? Have you ever had one of those bad dreams? Maybe a parent or a sibling or a friend spouse even. For me, the most devastating loss in my life would be my spouse. If my wife were to die, that would be the most devastating loss that I could ever experience. And sometimes I have that dream, not that she literally dies, but that she's not there, that she doesn't exist, that she's missing for some reason. I've never had that type of dream where she literally, I don't know, car accident or murder or something like that, but I just, this dream that she's not there and I'm looking for her and I can't find her. But then, as, as troubling as those dreams are, you know, as much as they make you wrestle in your sleep, for me, when I wake up, guess who's right there next to me? Esther. She's right there in all her sleeping beauty glory, right? <laughs> and for that instance, or maybe for that morning or for that day, I'm so overwhelmed with joy. Because in my mind, for a moment, I thought she was gone. But then I realized that she's alive. This is what Mary and Martha and all her family and friends are about to experience. They think Lazarus is gone. Imagine how much more they love him and embrace him and celebrate with him when Jesus raises him out of the tomb. And for us, let's fix our minds this week. Let's go through it again. I know you've been through it many, many times. But this week, we celebrate Good Friday and Easter to go through, to review, to rehearse again and again, to recount not only God's love, his incredible love for us, and his incredible sacrifice for us, but our love for him. 
That's why we celebrate anniversaries. That's why we celebrate birthdays, to remember how special someone is, how special this commitment was on this day, 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago. And that's what we do on Easter. We remember and we celebrate that Jesus has conquered sin and death. And hopefully, as we go through it this week, and we go through it on Friday, and we come to it on Sunday, it'll feel just like we're waking up from a bad dream. And guess who's there? And for that moment, hopefully, we'll be so overwhelmed with God's presence and his love and his spirit that we will do the only thing that we could possibly do in response, and that is worship. That's the plan. That's the plan. This miracle in John 11 tells us that God was fully God and fully man, and he ministers in this capacity to both Martha and Mary, but it also shows us that he came to conquer sin and death, and Lazarus' resurrection is a picture of our future resurrection if we believe he is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, took on flesh and blood and came down to earth and walked and talked and lived among us. Lord, we thank you that today we can be reminded of that great truth. And Lord, we thank you that now we can also remember it literally and edibly as we come to the table to take part of the bread and the juice. And so Lord, now in this time, would you continue to minister to us through your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.